You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. There are four great inventions in history once thought to have originated in the West that historians and scholars now understand to have come from China. The compass, gunpowder, papermaking, and printing. But maybe there was another invention that should have made that list, something that's taken on different names all over the world, influenced Asian, European, and African cultures, and by the year 2021 is estimated to be generating about 24 billion U.S. dollars in global trade. I'm talking about dumplings. That's right, dumplings. When you go for dim sum, do you order the siu mai or the ha gao? Do you like them pan-fried? Maybe you like them steamed or boiled. Maybe you call them gyoza or momos or pierogi, depending on whether you've got a Japanese, Nepalese, or Polish chef cooking for you. Australians call them dim sims, Spanish and Mexicans call them empanadas, and the Italians have tortellini and ravioli. If you're Turkish, Uyghur, Kyrgyz, or from Uzbekistan, you might call them manti, manta, or mantu. And if you're Korean, you call them mandu. In fact, depending on where you are in China, you'll be tasting a different texture, different ingredients, and ordering using different names. But who invented them? And why? The story of dumplings is the story of the globalization of Chinese cuisine. And if you think Chinese people all agree on who invented them, even how they got their shape, that's a whole other story. My name's Bernice Chan, and I'm going to take you on a journey in search of who, why, and how dumplings became such a global favorite. Let's start in a restaurant in Beijing that was opened 280 years ago. The Du Yi Chu restaurant has operated from the same address since 1738. And it's where you can find them serving a dumpling that's originated in Inner Mongolia that's also a favorite down south for yum cha in Hong Kong, the Xiao Mai. Um, let's say originally the type of food Du Yi Shu serves is based on Shanxi cuisines. This is Lu Hongbin, the chief manager of Du Yi Chu. It's original cuisine mainly because it first hired chefs from Shanxi, and the target customers were also the fellow countrymen from Shanxi at that time. He's talking about how the chefs who work here and the food they cooked was from Shanxi province otherwise known as the cradle of Chinese civilization. Because basically there's three types of Xiao Mai. Also, there's many different types as well. But firstly, there's the Cantonese Xiao Mai. Secondly, the one from Jiangsu Jiazhang region. You might have heard of it as well before. It has glutinous rice inside, right? And also this one, to the north of the Yellow River what we called Northern Xiao Mai, which is rooted in Shanxi. The origins are all in the regions of Shanxi. And while the ingredients of the Xiao Mai may have changed since 1738, the style of how they make it has stayed the same, as well as the symbolism of what that style represents. The 24 folds represents the 24 solar terms. This represents a Chinese climate indicators. It is formed with the skill of the chefs when they crush and roll the skins, taking advantage of the pressure. It is, to some extent, a very typical and representative feature of the Lofton Xiao Mai. 
In terms of Shanxi, it's a very common food for people from all classes, but at the same time, a necessary food for all the households, an indispensable cooking on our table. At the old time, generally speaking, after the harvest time and farmers had harvested and processed the new wheat, each household uses the new flour. They all make this xiao mai. In the past, xiao was the character which means the branch of the trees. The reason why it was the branch of the trees is that the northern xiao mai, or shanxi xiao mai, after steaming, people sprinkled wall flour on the surface of the skins. But the wall flour is actually cooked after getting fried. This has the meaning behind it. The more wall flour sprinkled on the wrappers, indicating the better harvest we will see in the second year. Why? Because in the spring, you can also see similar frost on the wheat plants. The more frost and the thicker the frost is, means the better the wheat will grow. If without the frost, or the frost only appear a little, it may point to a year with poor harvesting. So the Chinese food is closely related to the expectation of the working class, closely related to the agriculture as we were an agricultural country. It was very relevant. While Du Yichu has the reputation for making Xiaomai for royalty and a history that's nearly three centuries old, travel 1,200 kilometers south to Shanghai, and you'll find the birthplace of another signature Chinese dumpling, the Xiaolongbao. Head northwest of Shanghai, and you'll find yourself in Nanxiang, where you can also find the world's only museum dedicated to this unique Chinese dumpling. There you can learn about a young man named Huang Minxian, who in the 1870s was adopted by a bakery and worked with a dumpling master, hoping to innovate on the Shanxi dumpling design. He named it Nanxiang Daro Manto, meaning a large meat-filled bun from Nanxiang. But his marketing twist was that the bun was actually small and filled with a juicy meat filling as well as aspic or meat jelly, which would turn into a hot soup when it was steamed. Customers loved it, but they hated the name. They thought because the bao was small, xiao, and were served in a basket, long, it should be called xiaolong bao, and the famous Shanghainese soup dumpling was born. You might have tried xiaolong bao in Ding Tai Fung, the first Asian restaurant franchise to go global. Interestingly, that started in Taiwan, but let's go to where it all began in Shanghai. Here's Hu Weiyi, owner of Wan Shou Zai, one of the most popular Xiaolongbao restaurants in Shanghai, explaining how dumplings are made Shanghai style. There are two main points to making Xiaolongbao. First is the meat filling, and the key is the meat gelatin, which is the essence of Xiaolongbao. To make this gelatin, we have to prepare in advance. At four in the morning, our staff starts boiling pork bones to create the broth. It's cooked until 1 p.m. Then we remove the froth, add in pork skin that has its fat removed, and cook it in the stock for two hours. Then we take out the pork skin, grind it, and cook it for another hour until it becomes thick. We put it in the fridge until the night, then put it in the freezer. The next morning, it becomes a gelatin, which we then mix into the meat filling and add in water, sugar, salt, and other flavor enhancers. 
The meat filling needs to be kneaded by a machine for 45 minutes to give it elasticity. That's how the meat filling is made. Another key element of Shalambao is its skin. First you knead the dough. Unlike other stores which use a machine for it, we do it with our hands using a series of techniques including rubbing, pressing, pinching and pulling, so that the skin is elastic and the Shalambao won't be easily punctured. We don't use rolling pins either, because only by pressing them with our hands can we make skin that is thicker in the middle but thin on its edges, and the resulting Shalambao will have a bottom that holds its ingredients and the top still won't be very thick. Each has 18 folds. But there's more to the story of dumplings in northern China. Approximately between Beijing and Shanghai is Shandong province, home of Shandong-style dumplings. In the Prince Edward district of Hong Kong, you can find one small Shandong-style dumpling house called Achun Shandong Dumpling. It's got a Michelin recommendation, no less, and the chef and owner Wang Hongchun knows a few things not only about what makes Shandong-style dumplings different, He's got an idea on who invented them in the first place. Shandong dumplings can be seen as one of the signatures of northern dumplings. The most distinctive feature of Shandong dumplings is the dough wrapping. The dough wrapping must be handmade with flour, water and egg. This is the biggest difference between southern and northern dumplings. The reason why it must be made this way is because Shandong people take dumplings as their staple food, just like rice. The dough wrapping must be able to satisfy people's appetite, so handmade dough wrapping is more chewy to keep people feeling full. As for the filling, the most famous ones are Chinese cabbage and scallion. These are the signatures of Shandong dumplings. The most common, and can be made by every family, is the Chinese cabbage dumplings. We also use scallion with lamb. They go the best together. They taste good in the cold weather of Shandong. In spring, garlic chives are at its greenest. That means the first batch of chives. The chives at that time are still young and fresh, so chives and pork are the favorites of Shandong people. For seafood filling, we have fish dumplings. Hong Kong people call that mackerel. We call them bayou in Shandong and Qingdao. This is also a special type of dumplings. The fish filling is preferred to be fresh, but Cantonese ones, such as fish balls, like to be chewy. We also have squid dumplings. Chef Wang can also tell you that it's not just where you order your dumplings, but what time of year and that influences what you'll be eating. Dumplings for the new year are different from dumplings in other days. Dumplings are shaped like ingots for good fortune. They also add ingredients with auspicious meaning into the filling, such as jujube and peanuts. These dumplings are usually prepared on New Year's Eve and to be served on the first day of the new year. They wrap happiness in the dumplings and wish for good fortune and good health in the coming year. So dumplings change shape for the Lunar New Year into the shape of gold and silver ingots. There's something else that makes Shandong-style dumplings different too. Or should I say something that makes Shandong people different in the way they eat dumplings? The other difference is northern or Shandong dumplings are served in plates. You drink the broth used to cook the dumplings. That's called the original broth. It digests the original food. Yuan Tang Hua Yuan Shi. 
It is believed to be good for the digestive system. Guangdong or southern dumplings are served soaked in specially made broth. In my restaurant, we still insist on serving dumplings on plates. You can still order them to be served in broth, but authentic northern dumplings are very different from southern ones. Since the first time I ate my mom's dumplings at home until now, we never throw away the broth. We save the broth for when we finish eating the dumplings and drink it when it's not too hot but still warm. It's bland, but people like it. The dumplings are wrapped in dough, right? Then the flour on the surface of the dumplings will dissolve into the broth. It is bland. Some Guangdong people say it tastes like nothing. Why are you drinking it? People in Shandong, Beijing, in the northern areas all have the same habit. Guangdong people cannot accept that. But if Shandong people come to eat at my restaurant, they will say, give them two bowls of dumplings broth. What they are asking is broth, not soup. This is a habit or tradition. They feel comfortable drinking the bland broth. But who invented them? If you talk about historical records, dumplings were invented by a physician named Zhang Zhongcheng at the end of the Eastern Han Dynasty. There were a lot of diseases at that time, and the physician was famous for curing a lot of people. The reason why he invented dumplings was unknown. When he invented dumplings, I don't think he was wrapping up food for people to eat. He could be wrapping up something else. Historical records did not say why or how he invented dumplings or what he put in it. But dumplings can be found as early as in the end of the Eastern Han Dynasty. Dumplings were invented by a doctor of Chinese medicine? If you look up the origins of dumplings online, you'll see Zhang Zhongjing's name mentioned quite a bit, as a healer, as a doctor. But it's only a small part of his story. Because he wasn't just a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, he's the doctor. This is Dr. Dai Zhao Yu. He's a senior lecturer at the School of Traditional Chinese Medicine at the Hong Kong Baptist University. He's been practicing and teaching Chinese medicine for almost 30 years. He also knows a thing or two about Zhang Zhongjing. Talking about the dumplings, the earliest legend that we can find is about the doctor saint, Zhang Zhongjing. It is said that he has invented the dumpling. What kind of person is Zhang Zhongjing? He is a famous doctor in the Donghan dynasty in China. He wrote an important book called Shang Han Lun. This book has spread to this day. Many of prescriptions they recorded are still being used today, and their curative effects are very good. This book is our textbook for clinical application. Zhang's influence can be seen not only in China, but also in Japan and South Korea. The research about Zhang, his book, and the application of his prescriptions is still going on nowadays. So a traditional Chinese medicine doctor invented dumplings, or as we call it in Mandarin, jiaozi. And as it turns out, there's a lot more to the name, starting with how you pronounce it. Regarding the origin of jiaozi, if we examine it from its name and its semantics, it contains many cultural elements and literary elements. We cannot confirm its origin from a scientific point of view. This is similar to the traditional Chinese medicine. Because the ear is exposed to the outside, it will easily get chillblain in low-temperature environment.
Zhang Zhongjing created jiaozi to treat chilblain in the ear, so one of the names is jiaoer. However, since its shape is angular, the shape of dumplings is the same as hundun, so people regard them as the same things. But later, many other names appear, such as jiaozi, jiao means the angle, and zi means the small. And another name is jiaozi. This jiao means the traffic. What do these names mean? Judging from the shape, it may be angular, and when we touch it, we will also feel angular. We called it jiaozi. Great news, dumpling lovers! Turns out ordering a big plate of dumplings, or jiaozi, is just what the doctor ordered. But there's a lot more to the Chinese Lunar New Year traditional family feast, too. People always eat dumplings at festivals, like Lunar New Year and Winter Solstice Day. So the dumpling is related to the traditional Chinese culture. For example, in the past, the Spring Festival in China means the beginning of a new year in the lunar calendar. It says goodbye to the old year and welcome the new. Then what is the starting point? In ancient China, the time was calculated by 12 earthly branches, like zi, the rat, chou, the ox, yin, the tiger, mao, the rabbit. The zi time is between 11 and 1 o'clock in the middle of the night. In this two-hour period, 11 o'clock symbolizes that we're still in the old year, while at 1 o'clock, we are in the new year. So that's the time of the transition between the old and the new year, and we call this period jiaozi. During this period, people will eat New Year's Eve dinner and dumplings to welcome the new year. Dr. Dai Zhao Yu can also tell us how the jiaozi made its way to Japan and became known as gyoza. That's a much more modern story beginning in the 1930s. There are many legends about how dumplings came into Japan, but there is no final conclusion. Some legends set in the time of the Manzhouguo, the last emperor Puyi, who was supported by Japan, established the so-called Manzhouguo in the northeast China. And at the time, the Japanese also came to the northeast of China to develop railways and forest industry. So, a large number of Japanese immigrants came to China. While in the northern China, the dumpling is an important kind of staple food. People will eat it in the daily life, so many Japanese learned how to cook it and brought it back to Japan. The spread of dumplings in Japan was accompanied with ramen. Almost at the same time, many Chinese immigrants came to Hokkaido in Japan. Hokkaido is also a cold place which is similar to northeast China. If you drink hot soup and eat dumplings there in winter, you will feel very comfortable. The Chinese immigrants in Hokkaido, Japan, eat dumplings and the Japanese learn from them. This food soon became popular in Japan from south to north, from east to west. The dumplings became a very popular food in Japan. So that's how dumplings got to Japan. But how did they travel west? How did they get to Nepal and transform into momos? The Himalayan street food that's become one of the biggest, hottest food trends to hit New York City. The word momo in the Jin Chinese dialect of Shanxi province means unfilled bun, which maybe is a clue. The far more romantic legend out there is a Tibetan king married a Nepalese princess in the 7th century at the behest of the Tang dynasty emperor Zhang Zong. The anthropological explanation suggests that when Tibet brought Buddhism to China, China brought dumplings to Tibet. Let's ask one of the most prominent Nepalese chefs in Hong Kong, Minu Tangilama Gurung. 
She runs Annapura Restaurant, where momos are a way of life. How did Nepal get its momos? Uh, momo is a come from actually influence from Tibet, with the Tibetan people. A lot of Tibetan people residing in Nepal now. They brought these things in Nepal. They started like a, another thing also, Tupa. This is another one. But the dumpling they started, right, the momo. And then it became very popular around the country. Then everybody knows momo. Everybody really liked the taste and they know how to make. And then it's really, you know, it spread all over the country. Now it's very famous because uh, we know how to make it. They started and popular, tasty. So now everybody well know how to prepare. So what makes a momo different from a jiaozi, xiao mai or xiaolong bao? In Nepal, it's uh, usually both meat, the buffalo. Usually buffalo meat is, was popular. It has now is um, people expanding like uh, a chicken momo, uh, other meat momo, but mostly Buffalo momo is very popular in Nepal. Um, yeah, and when we, I came to Hong Kong, I didn't see buffalo at all, but we also make same way, chicken momo, lamb momo, and vegetable momo. But Mino makes it clear, it's not just what's inside a momo that makes it Nepalese, it's what you put on it. In Nepal, the momo dip with the sauce. They can, cannot imagine without sauce has to be sauce. And sauce is a few different types. One is the tomato sesame. This is a very popular and very common sesame and tomato. It's very common. And another one is a soupy style. It's like a soup. Like we put dumpling in a bowl and then pour the soup. Also sesame and also they can make also the soybean, soybean from soybean and sesame also, but make the liquid and sour, very sour. The sour also make um, a special kind of ingredient. It's called lopsy. It's called lopsy, one of the sour fruit, actually. Small sour fruits. And they have a skin, sour fruit skin. They dry the skin. They make the powder skin. It's very tasty sour. Usually, that's, that's sour, skin, <laughs> dry skin, paste. Mixing with the liquid, momosh liquid sauce is uh, very tasty. This is where the way we make the soupy style sauce. And is there one particular restaurant in Nepal famous for momos? Street food in Nepal, this one. You can find in a five-star hotel also. You can find in a three-star hotel. You can find in any five fine dining hotel, Momo, in the menu. And you also can find, you know, every street in a junction, small, only sell Momo. Now, here's the thing about Kathmandu. It was a stop on the original Trans-Himalayan Silk Road, which connected Nepal to Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, and Mongolia. And later, it connected to the famous Silk Road, which connected China to Central Asia and Europe. Now, the legend of the Silk Road tends to be dominated by Marco Polo. And if you're thinking, aha, he was the guy who brought dumplings from China to Europe, you're wrong. And you need to meet a woman called Jen Lin Liu. She runs a cooking school in Beijing and a few years ago decided it was time for her to make the journey along the Silk Road. She wrote a book about it called The Noodle Road. Her biggest revelations were, you guessed it, 
about dumplings. The journey was, um, uh, you know, a six thousand mile expedition uh, that started in Beijing and went all the way to Rome. Um, I traveled through China, Central Asia, um, Iran, um, through Turkey and went up to Greece and then eventually to Italy. And basically my premise was that uh, pasta noodles were related uh, because I had seen in on a trip to Rome that um, the way that Italian chefs made noodles or pasta, I'm sorry, were exactly the same way that my chef at my cooking school in Beijing uh, made his noodles. So it started out as a journey about noodles, but I found out that it was really dumplings, which are an extension of noodles and pasta, um, that it was really the dumplings that connected all of these places along the Silk Road. Um, In every culture across uh, Asia and Europe, you can find versions of dumplings, whether it's uh, jiaozi in China um, to, you know, the Monte of Central Asia and Turkey, Um, to the tortellini of Italy, um, you could see different versions of, of, you know, some kind of filling uh, wrapped inside, uh, you know, a noodle type dough. Jin's also got some bad news for people who think Marco Polo brought Chinese cuisine to Italy. Yeah, well, it turns out the Marco Polo story is a is a very nice, um, you know, legend that actually uh, began with a, a pasta manufacturer's newsletter in the United States in the 1930s. And it was just some, you know, clever American writer's way of trying to figure out how to get Americans to eat more pasta um, during uh, the 1930s when, you know, Italian food was was still very, very exotic in the United States. Um, so that that has been proven as a myth. So who was it? Jin's got a theory, backed with evidence that suggests the person who delivered dumplings to Europe made a much bigger, more violent impression than the return of Marco Polo. Through some of my research, I came across some hypotheses that um, it was not necessarily Marco Polo that brought, you know, noodles and dumplings to to Europe, but it, it could have been Genghis Khan, who you know, conquered a wide swath of territory all the way from modern day Korea and Japan all the way to, um, you know, Hungary, where you find also versions of dumplings and um, in Eastern and Central Europe. So now let's take that 6th century detour on the Silk Road that takes us towards Georgia, Ukraine, Poland and Russia. How did the dumpling transform from the jiaozi into the pierogi? Meet Olena Smith. She runs the Dacha restaurant here in Hong Kong. If you're a homesick Russian, Polish, Georgian, Kyrgyz, or Ukrainian in central Hong Kong, there's a good chance you'll end up here eating food that reminds you of home. What does she know about the dumpling story? I think uh, all the pasta dishes or dumplings dishes, it's everybody wants to uh, take ownership and say we are the one who invent them. But on the end of the day, we have some evolution of come from uh, when it's come from China and how they serve in China all the way to Kazakhstan or Central Asia, go to Russia with pelmeni, go to Ukraine with vareniki and Poland 
uh, pierogi and end up in maybe, for example, Italy with uh, tortellini or something, we focus on completely different key texture. And every part of it will um, will showcase the texture to the to the fullness. And I think with Russian uh, pelmeni, you st you see a thinner dough, but the juicier meat inside, and the shape like ear. Wait a minute, what? Did she say ear? That's where pelmeni comes from. The it's a shape name. It's an ear shape. Kazakhstan with manti, they focus on the also they want to produce the thin dough but they will go wild with shapes and they will make it as roses and beautiful shape. And the meat, they, not, they don't mince it, they chop it. So every region will showcase a um, different style and they want to be unique. Olena says she's never heard of Zhang Zhongjing or the legend of his cure for frostbite. But there's something else she knows about dumplings that links people from one side of Europe to the east coast of China. We do it in this restaurant, we do it with chicken broth, but uh, traditionally it's just the water from the making of dumplings. They drink the dumpling water? Just like the Shandong people do at Chef Wang Hongchun's restaurant? Because when we cook the pelmeni, the classic dumplings with meat, we cook it in little water just to make it as much flavor as possible and we drink the soup as well. Because for us, it's just a meat broth as such. And we just, I think we don't like to waste, but also we're big on soup. So with the more liquid we, we get, the better. For, we believe that this is our, how stomach work better if we put the more hot liquid in the in. I think the Russia, it's number one. They're big on pelmeni. Ukraine also took a pelmeni with the soup, but not much, not as much as Russians. We more stay with butter and dill sauce. Sometimes you do it with soup, but uh, I think uh, Russian people are more keen on the drinking soup from the pelmeni because the diversity of people come through the doors on this restaurant: Russians, Ukrainian, Polish. And what can I see that Russians are all order with the soup? Who knew Russian, Polish, and Shandong people had this in common? There was something else happening on the Silk Road. That's where the tradition of dim sum has its origins. When the travelers and merchants were headed from east to west and back again, some of those travelers headed to southern China and an island and harbor city that would later become known as Hong Kong. This is where dim sum became yum cha, and that's what the Silk Road version of a truck stop snack became an epic weekly restaurant tradition for friends and families. It's also where you can find the fiercest competition among chefs to make the best, most exotic dumplings in the world. Meet the master dim sum chef at Cuisine Cuisine in the Mira Hotel. Chef Ringo Wong. Making dim sum in the past, especially in my father's generation, no apprentice was allowed to start making shrimp dumplings, or xiao mai, right away. You start with the lowliest tasks in the kitchen, such as processing pork, and the tasks were all very mechanical and repetitive. Not until you reach a certain level, and the master thinks you have become more proficient and determined, are you allowed to start making shrimp dumplings or wrapping up xiao mai? I felt really frustrated at the time, because nobody knows how to do it at the beginning, right? You could only try to figure it out and pick up the skills bit by bit. 
through work, but the outcome is certainly almost never good. I remember clearly, whenever I finished my work, like processing the beef, I would rush to start making shrimp dumplings. It's really strange that whenever I made a shrimp dumpling, my master would throw it away. It was not eco-friendly at all. I was really frustrated at the time, but I believed that I could improve with time. Slowly, you become more familiar with it, and you think about ways to improve. So once a Hong Kong chef manages not to have his work thrown in the trash by his sifu, what's the atmosphere like in the kitchen? It was very interesting in the past. We had competitions between chefs when making shrimp dumplings, such as whether you could make 12 folds when wrapping up a dumpling. If you can't make 12 folds, that means you're not skillful enough. But it's different nowadays, because we need to take into account the types of fillings as well. If we need to make 12 folds, the filling has to be diced very finely. But now that we like to use the whole of a shrimp, it's more difficult to make the 12 folds. But the whole of a shrimp definitely tastes better. Chef Ringo also has an insight into the difference between North and South dumpling tastes too. And he's at the forefront of the daily battle to not only be the fastest and the best at making dumplings, He's pushing the envelope of what a dumpling can be. All dumplings came from the same line, actually. But as time went on, as the East met West, the variety of ingredients widened. And with the changing food culture, different types of dumplings evolved. The steam ones, pan-fried ones, deep-fried ones, served in broth, all kinds. Chefs also get creative, depending on the customer's preferences. Also, dumplings today have a lot of variety. The dough wrappings can be made of different types of veggie broths. We can use lobster, abalone, coral trout, etc. as the filling, as long as it tastes luxurious and looks delicate. Dumplings today can take a lot of different shapes. They can be made in the shape of a goldfish, but it's nothing unusual. There was this kind of personification of dumplings in the past. But the level of that has definitely gone up a notch. Now we might put dumplings in glassware and make it really look like a goldfish in a fish tank. And if you truly want to know what an East meets West dumpling might taste like, Chef Ringo might just have it. Recently, our restaurant created a chocolate dumpling. We collaborated with the Western chef in our patisserie and invented this dish. The dumplings had three flavors, the banana chocolate, green tea chocolate, and dark chocolate. The molten chocolate is first wrapped in a layer of mochi, and then another layer of xiaolongbao wrapping. You can taste the texture of the molten chocolate, the chewy mochi, and the smooth dough wrapping. Feel free to give it a try. A molten chocolate xiaolongbao? We've come a long way from Dr. Zhang Zhongjing's cure for frostbite. been listening to episode 3 of the Inside China series. Interviews recorded by Rachel Chung, Elaine Lau, and Jared Watt. Voiceovers by Bong Mikiabas, Brian Peach, Phila Su, Adam White, and Dayu Zhang. Interviews and translations by Caroline Kwong, Elaine Lau, Scout Zhu, Rachel Chung, and Dorothy Ma. Presented by Bernice Chan, Written and produced by Jared Watt. This has been a South China Morning Post podcast.